0: Welcome to the Christian Mysticism Podcast, where we explore the fascinating history of Christian mysticism from the early days of the church until today. I'm Alberto de la Cruz, and I'm joined by my co host, Dr. Carlos Ayer, the T. Lawrence Riggs Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University. How are you today, Carlos? I'm doing fine. How about you, Alberto? I'm doing good, working on a little cold, so my voice oh. may be a little deeper than usual. But Otherwise, oh, yeah. doing good enjoying the wonderful weather down here in in South Florida
1: yeah don't rub
0: it in <laughs> <laughs> for our listeners who are not aware of it i 'm based down here in in South Florida, but Carlos obviously being a professor at yale is up in in New Haven, Connecticut, so it gets a little cooler over there here we're mm-hmm. going through a we 're going through a little bit of a cold spell it's it 's down into the uh, low seventies. <laughs> So Carlos, in our first two episodes we talked about the definition of Christian mysticism and we started to talk about the origins of Christian mysticism and we got through a lot of it in in that second episode but I know we still had some topics to cover so I hand it over to you and take us away
1: Yeah, well uh, you know, the the fact that Christianity as a religion began with Jesus of Nazareth, in the reign of Caesar Augustus, means that it was the the religion itself, Jesus himself, people around Jesus, and, and um, people uh, you know outside of Jerusalem and all the all over the Mediterranean world. Um, the religious situation was was very fluid, and actually at that time in the Roman Empire, um, syncretism was very common. I mean, people picked whatever they liked from whatever religion they encountered and mixed and matched, much like we do with insurance policies, you know, that we, we can take on extra insurance policies if we want. And Judaism uh, at that time uh, was, was very heavily influenced by by various other religions of the time. And especially, most of all, uh, at At the higher intellectual level and also the spiritual level, there were Greek philosophical schools that had a, a lot of influence on on the Jewish religion at the time of Jesus, and um, therefore also on the development of the Christian religion. The Greek culture of the especially of the Eastern Mediterranean world, you know, and, and stretching all the way to the Indus River, known as Hellenism. Hellenism is the spread of Greek culture that happened when Alexander the Great uh, went eastward and and conquered all these lands, including Persia, all the way almost to to India. And Greek culture included Greek philosophy. The Greek word, the Greek name for Greece is Hellas, hence Hellenism. And um, the one city in the Roman Empire where there were the highest number of philosophical schools, actual schools, was Alexandria in Egypt, which is not very far from Jerusalem. And actually, there, there is no mention of which Greek city Joseph, Mary, and baby Jesus fled to in Egypt. There's a tradition that it was Heliopolis, which was kind of near Alexandria. But we that, that's just a legend. We don't know for sure where they went. And we also don't know how long they were there in terms of years, uh, because the uh, chronology in the Gospels uh, sometimes just doesn't match the, the chronology in, in, in other historical accounts as to when emperors ruled and kings like Herod ruled and so on and so forth. There's a mismatch. So we don't know. But the point I'm trying to make is, one is that Hellenistic philosophies were thriving at the time. And the place where they thrived most intensely was not that far from Jerusalem or Nazareth, for that matter. Right. So um, the very first three centuries of the Christian religion, Christian thinkers had to come to terms with the the message of Christianity. And they had to make sense of it. And many of them employed, let's call it uh, the the structure, the structure of their thinking. They borrowed uh, structures of thinking from Hellenistic philosophies. And some Christians were not too happy about that. One in particular, Tertullian, third century. And Tertullian is an interesting figure because he he was the first to use the Latin word Trinitas for the Trinity. And Tertullian um, wrote many uh, polemical texts, you know, um, against this, against that, against this, against that. But uh, he also was very good at at coining phrases. And one of his best known phrases was, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Meaning, what does reason have to do with Revelation? And he was asking it seriously. It was not a rhetorical question. So there was a certain amount of, you know, fear of taking on too much Greek thought. But the truth is that, um, as, as, as we'll see as we, our conversation continues today, there was much already in place in the Jewish religion
0: well, I, when I, Christianity began. I, I think it's no coincidence that a lot of the New Testament, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of the New Testament was written in Greek. All of it. All of it? All of it. I thought so. Every single was,
1: book in the New Testament.
0: Were originally written in Greek. Yes. I always yeah, thought there may, there may have been some Hebrew or Aramaic in there.
1: No. Well, Jesus, all experts agree, you know, Jesus must have spoken Aramaic. We don't know if he knew Greek. But uh, if, anyone who's read the Gospels um, can notice Jesus' crucifixion in some of the gospel accounts that Pontius Pilate orders for the sign on the cross to be uh, in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And um, it said, Jesus, King of the Jews. And of course, that upset some of those who had him crucified. But um, it was in those three languages, not Aramaic. So we don't know uh, if Jesus knew Greek, but all of the New Testament books are, are, are in Greek because Greek in the Eastern Mediterranean world was like the equivalent of English in the world now. It That's was the language that if you wanted to move ahead and, and, and uh, in any direction, you needed Greek.
0: That makes sense.
1: Yeah, and all those communities that Paul writes to his, his epistles – you know, Galatians, Ephesians, uh, Car- Corinthians, those are all Greek cities, Greek-speaking cities. Cities. So Paul knew Greek, for sure. He, you know, he, he grew up in Tarsus, which was, you know, present-day Turkey, but that was, you know, the, that was Greek culture at the time. So anyway, um, all these philosophical schools, they bothered Tertullian a little bit and some others, but most of the Early Christian thinkers relied on on structures of thinking, and let me pause for a second and um, insert this because I don't know if I've uh, we've talked about this before, and this is very important to understand about mysticism in general, not just Christian mysticism. That it you know when it comes to a philosophical analysis of mysticism and of mystical texts there are two branches of philosophy that provide the structure for mystical texts. And the first one is metaphysics. What does that mean? Meta beyond physics, beyond the physical metaphysics is a branch of philosophy that studies what is ultimately real or what reality is. And the other branch of philosophy that is, everywhere in every mystical text you have to come to terms with it is epistemology and what that means is epistemology is all about knowing knowledge how 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 you find the truth how you determine that something is true how you learn it's all about acquiring knowledge how do we acquire knowledge that's epistemology Uh, So those are the two branches of philosophy that show up in Christian mysticism. And of course, the Greek philosophers had developed very sophisticated ways of uh, speaking about these two branches of philosophy. So that's why Greek philosophy is so significant for those first century Christians and the second century Christians and the third century. And so on. So, for the early centuries,
0: it's everywhere. And, That's, you know, there's. Go ahead. No, no, I was just saying it, it's obvious uh, based on the history and, and what you're telling us about how uh, the Greeks really did have a, a tremendous influence on on not only the whole entire world, but specifically in, in the Jewish world at that time uh, that Jesus was around. And this whole Christian mysticism thing began.
1: Yes. And there was actually an exact contemporary of Jesus, Philo, a Jew who lived in Alexandria. And he tried to reconcile Greek philosophy with the Hebrew texts of the Bible. And many early Christians, early Christian thinkers, were actually very influenced by Philo. Because when you think about it, the early Christians, they, they wrote those books that are now the New Testament in the first century. But they also uh, adopted the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible, what Christians would eventually call the Old Testament, right? What we call the Old Testament. Christians had to accept that. So Philo helped them a lot to understand the texts of the Old Testament uh, in this philosophical framework.
0: Yeah, there's uh, the Orthodox Church. I believe. Uh, are you referring to the Old Testament translated into into Greek by, yeah, by Jewish yes. scholars that that spoke Greek? Yes, and and they were in Alexandria,
1: and, and and that text, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, took place in Alexandria. Why? Because there were many Jews in Alexandria. couldn't read hebrew (laughs) didn't speak hebrew so and and not only that there were jews scattered all over the mediterranean jewish communities uh and their language was greek you know in the same way that there are many jews uh, throughout the world who really they might know some elementary hebrew but can't really read like a full hebrew text of, let's say, like Exodus or Genesis in Hebrew. Uh, So the Greek, which is known as, that version is known as the Septuagint. Why that name? It refers to the number 70. And the legend is that the Hebrew text was translated simultaneously by 70 rabbis. And each and every one of them came up with the exact same translation. Wow. (laughs) So the Septuagint text, that Greek text, was considered divine revelation, right? No mistakes could have been made. God directed every one of those translators. And um,
0: not not taking into consideration the veracity of of the Septuagint as, as far as being divine and inspired by God, would you say that being these were Greek speakers and schooled in the in Greek philosophy, I would assume living in in a Greek society, mm-hmm. would you say some of that Greek philosophical influence, I don't want to say leaked or tainted, but played a role in in the way those texts were were translated? Yeah, sure, sure
1: although you know i'm not a biblical scholar so i can't point out any examples uh, but it's inevitable especially if if anything is remotely abstract right in 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 the the wording of a text then yeah sure and it it's inevitable and then again you know more more evidence that Alexandria is, is like a, you know, an axis, you know, if you see the whole Mediterranean intellectual world uh, as a wheel, Alexandria is the axis. Uh, and there's no getting around that. The The fact that is, and, and uh, nobody can deny this fact, is that someone like Philo was not the only philo was not the only jew intellectual who was dealing with greek philosophy and the gospel of john we'll start here with the greek there's an example where 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 do where does greek thinking show up in the new testament there is no clearer definitive proof than the beginning of john's gospel which begins uh everyone seems to know who has read the gospel of John. They remember this in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word was made flesh. What is this business with word? You know, usually capitalized in, in English translations, that's a Greek term. When you read the gospel of John in Greek, That word is logos, L-O-G-O-S. And that, that word means word or reason, right? Reason, mind, word, more specifically, literally, word. And that word is the son of God who became incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth. He became a man. But where does that term Logos come from? It comes from a, a philosophical school, the Stoics. Uh, so there you have it right in front of anyone who picks up John's gospel.
0: Yeah, remember uh, we, we spoke about that uh, on our last episode. Yeah. Uh, the, the big influence that Greek Stoicism had on, on John and, and the way he starts out his, his gospel. Yeah. But we, we've talked a lot about how, Greek philosophy influenced the Jewish community at the time, but I, I would assume that it also had a big influence on the on the pagan or Gentile community as well, correct?
1: Oh, yes. And actually, at this point, it's good. I'm glad you asked that because it's a very good point uh, in our conversation to highlight the fact that many of the, some, I wouldn't say many, but some of these philosophical schools, especially those that had the greatest influence on Christianity. They're not purely philosophical. They're also religious, uh, even mystical in their approach to, you know, their search for for truth with a capital T. So um, that they have a religious quality to them, especially uh, we'll get to that, you know, Stoicism and the philosophy of Plato and of Plato's uh, followers and disciples, Platonism those two but especially platonism and we'll spend much of our time today dealing with platonism because that's the most important
0: it's almost like if if we go back and 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 look at god the father as as the creator and the one who puts everything in motion and it, it one can almost say that the whole idea of greek philosophy and we talked about it in the last episode how it's based on reason and and that reason comes from God, uh, because you you see it being almost a framework that Christianity uses to bring everybody together. Because you would have all these disparate peoples, you know, Gentiles, pagans, Hellenists, uh, all these different religions and all these all these different cultures, but they all subscribed in one way or another to a certain degree but substantially to greek philosophy and that greek philosophy was the entry point for them into christianity
1: yes especially for, you know for those that um, were better educated that was very important but yeah it's you know if you're trying to let's say you're paul and you arrive at ephesus and you start preaching uh or athens what do you do while well, you try to try to speak this language as a matter of fact paul does this in athens in the acts of the apostles paul's vi- visit to athens it, it offers a remarkable glimpse of this this mixing anyway when paul gets to athens um what he does is he he starts to uh, speak to the athenians they had you know philosophical schools too Uh, He says, oh, oh, I see you have a statue here for the unknown God. And I'll tell you who that God is. And then he starts to, you know, bring in the Jewish stuff. But if you're Paul, how do you sell Christianity to people? You have to speak not only their language, literally, but you have to say things that are not only comprehensible to the people you're talking to, they have to be problem-solving. Why would anyone change their religion? Well, you have to offer them a better product than they already have, <laughs> right? And you can't do that without addressing the needs that these people have and these needs as they understand them according to their culture. And that, that is the, the challenge of every missionary that goes to, you know, from, from Western culture, Christian culture, to, to some other place in the world that has a completely different culture. You have to speak their language in more ways than one. So the, the Greeks in Athens, we read the account in Acts of the Apostles. They all walk away from Paul except for one. And the reason they were all turned off by Paul is that he begins to speak about resurrection. Why would that upset anyone? It would upset anyone who was a Platonist, or Stoic, or many other schools of thought. Because as these schools of thought saw it, the point of religion and philosophy was to get you out of the body, to become 100% spiritual and have no body. So actually telling people, hey, you're going to have a body forever, seemed like hell (laughs) or punishment. And it didn't make sense to them, except for one guy, Dionysius. And we'll have to, we'll, we'll probably have a a whole, a a whole segment just on Dionysius or a, a person, let's put it this way, six centuries later, somebody claimed to be that man and wrote several very, very important mystical treatises. So
0: there Sounds you have philosophy please. in
1: the Acts of the Apostles, the confrontation between Paul And these Greek thinkers in Athens, they all hated, all but one hated what he had to say, because he was proposing a kind of salvation that they saw not as salvation, but rather as damnation.
0: Now, we talk about Greek philosophy in in sort of general terms, but, you know, we know there were different schools of thought uh, uh, associated with it. Which one would you say... I know we've talked about Stoicism and Platonism and Neoplatonism. Which one would you say had the most influence on? Uh, Neoplatonism.
1: Neoplatonism. <clears throat> which which uh, is is a later version of Platonism. I mean, we, we don't need to get tangled up in this, but you know, experts um, identify different kinds of Platonism. The the and, and there's you know Platonism, there's middle Platonism. And then Neoplatonism, which begins in the third century of the Christian era, right? So, uh, And the, the key figure there is a, a thinker in Alexandria named Plotinus. And um, we, we can spend uh, probably the rest of this chat just dealing with Neoplatonism. But um, before we get to Plotinus and Neoplatonism, it's important to point out w- what the metaphysical and epistemological uh, structure of Platonism is and also of Neoplatonism. Uh, yeah, did, because did,
0: did they believe in, in a God? Did they believe that there was a higher power? A God existed?
1: Well, it, as, as a saying has it, it's complicated.
0: <laughs> it's complicated.
1: Uh, they 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 actually uh, had a conception of the higher power or higher realm or higher reality, which was not exactly monotheistic belief in only one God, but was something that they they saw as being beyond that, if that can be imagined, right um and and actually. We'll get to this eventually. But Neoplatonism in particular, their view of reality was as follows. And I'll work backwards. The lowest you can go in reality, the lowest point of existence is our world, the material world. The real world, and this goes back to Plato, the real world is the spiritual realm, and the point of life is to try to get back to that spiritual realm. But how did our world come to be? That's the that's the, the 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 difficult thing to explain. But once we get going here, I think everyone who's listening to us will be able to see why Neoplatonism and Christianity were so compatible. All right, and and here's. Here's the Neoplatonist reality. There is the one, right? One in English, one, O-N-E. In Greek, N, E-N. That one, which is above everything, totally, totally different from anything we can conceive. And it is admitted no human being can know the one fully in this world. The one begins to expand. This is before time, right? Before time, the one begins to expand. And its first expansion is mind. In Greek, nous, N-O-U-S. And nous, or mind, is the equivalent, more or less, of logos, or word, in Stoicism. Mind, reason. All right, so that's level two of how the how the cosmos comes into existence. First is the one eternal, outside of time, outside of space, out, you know, totally spiritual mind, which is also non-material. It's spiritual, and then third level, soul, in Greek psyche, p s y c h e in the English spelling. Now, what does that sound like? It's called a triad. It's an exact parallel to the Christian trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and that Son is Logos, and then soul or spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One, mind, soul. Fascinating. But it doesn't stop there. (laughs) Those three are, if it, it, view them as concentric circles, right? Like one of those uh, targets for, for shooting arrows at or any target shoot guns at too. The bullseye is the one and so on. The, the next circle is noose. The third circle is psyche. And it keeps unfolding. It keeps unfolding and unfolding and unfolding at different levels of reality ever diminishing in reality ever diminishing in spirit and at the very end of this expansion is our world which is as low as you can go in existence there is nothing below this world in terms of reality it's non-being and i know now we're getting very very abstract but of course all these
0: philosophies get into very abstract concepts. But that, ex- so, that explains why they didn't really weren't too keen on the whole idea of resurrection of the body.
1: That is right. There you have it. Because in, in this, this philosophy, which of course now is starting to sound a lot like a religion, isn't it? <laughs> Here's how they explain the human condition. Human condition is well, who are we? Why, why are we here in the material world? Somehow and it's never explained exactly how, right? Every different, every expansion, every level has a reflection of that triad. And here in the material world, our world, human beings are material beings who have their real identity, the real self, what you say, what you call the I, me, I, me, who am I? who am I? Really? I'm not my body. I am, let's call it a soul. I am spirit. There is a perfect image, reflection, point of contact with that triad in me. And that is who I am. And I am eternal. But somehow I have ended up trapped in this body. The reason for this entrapment Not explained, but the whole point of human existence in Neoplatonism is to get back to the One, and Plotinus thought, yes, you can, you can in this life, you can get back to the One. How? Oh, well, that's the that's the difficult thing, self denial, self denial, because embodiment is bad, our material needs, our appetites. They're, they're not exactly good. They just entrap you some more, right? And um, the process, of this expansion of the one in Neoplatonism is known as emanation. So things emanate. They, 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 they come forth from one point. They emanate outwards. And at the outer edge is our material world with us in it. And our goal as human beings is remination. Going back to the one through all those levels to the one. It sounds simple, right? But it's not simple at all. It's very complicated because this escape from the material world is only for a very few. You know, Neoplatonism is, unlike Christianity, Neoplatonism is not something that someone like Paul, let's say somebody else, some other name, can go around the Mediterranean saying, hey, look. I'm offering you this chance to be saved from your body uh, because what was required to reminate back to the one was very complicated, very complex, very hard, very difficult. Whereas Christianity is saying, hey, all you need is to believe in Jesus, right? A- a- and participate in these rituals and you'll be saved and you'll have an everlasting body. That's what shocked those people in Athens so much. Oh, my God, who would want to have a body uh, forever?
0: It's amazing how the there's so many similarities and so many dissimilarities mm-hmm. between the two, the, the conflicts and the unison that you find in Christianity and, and Greek philosophy. Now, I know in our last episode... We discussed that we we're going to get into the Neoplatonism, but what, what I really want to know is uh, you mentioned Saint Augustine, yes. And I really want to know how how he plays into this whole entire. Yeah. Uh,
1: yes, and we may have to spend more time on Augustine because he's so important uh, for so many different reasons. Right. But I pronounce yeah. it
0: in the Spanish way, Augustine. I will think
1: <laughs> Augustine. Augustine. Uh, By the way, I I uh, uh I was born and baptized, San Augustine Parish, in Havana. That was my that was my parish church, was Saint Augustine, and actually there was a very to me as a child, horribly scary uh, fresco I think it was it was either a painting or a fresco, uh, of Saint Augustine's death. <laughs> That's nice. Oh my God, that was in all my nightmares. And here I end up that later, you know, much, much later, finding out who he was and how important he was, and what wonderful things he has to offer.
0: He was known as the human prince. Beings. He was known as the prince of mystics, wasn't he?
1: Yeah. Well, there's a there's a book um, by um, Dom Cuthbert Butler in which he calls Augustine the Prince of Mystics. Yeah, he's got all uh, it's one chapter or a series of chapters where he deals with Augustine. It's basically a a history of mysticism, Christian mysticism. It's an old book. It's, it's very, very, it's like either late 19th century uh, or early 20th century. Um, And in there he calls Augustine the Prince of Mystics. Why would that be? Well, here's Augustine's story and his life story is inseparable from his mysticism. He was born in 354 in present-day Tunisia, which was then part of the Roman Empire. So North Africa, Tunisia. And his mother was Christian. His father was not. His mother wanted to make him Christian, have him baptized, but the father did not. So he grew up in a religiously mixed household. His father was pagan, his mother was Christian. Her name was Monica, by the way, Saint Monica. Augustine um, tells us in his autobiography, which has the title of the Confessions, the Confessions of Saint Augustine, is regarded as the first true autobiography in Western culture. And it's an intellectual and spiritual biography as well as a personal biography. That's why the title is Confessions. And the Confessions begins, and and, and much of it throughout the entire text, Augustine is confessing to whom? To God. So of course, you're the reader, right? You're picking up this book and you see it and, and you see Augustine constantly praying to God, praying to God and at the very same time telling you his life story. But Hold on a second because I think maybe this is a good point at which to read the very beginning of Augustine's Confessions uh, where he says in a prayer to God, oh god you know you're we are restless you have made us for yourself this is how the, the, that that line begins you have made us for yourself and we are restless until we rest in you Wow, that's, that's, that's the Neoplatonic thing, which is also the Christian thing. But it's that idea that our real self, our deepest self, is spiritual and eternal. And its true home is the pre- being in the presence of God. You have made us for yourself, and we are restless until we rest in you. Well let's go back to his life story. How he got to that point was that he went off to study uh in Carthage, also in North Africa uh, and um, he he had a very, very uh typical life for a, a teenager and a young adult in in twenties, uh given over to partying uh and um, especially to carnal pleasures, as he says. You know, Carthage was just boiling over with carnal pleasures, and he, 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 he took advantage of that. But he was also, at a very early age, he tells us, very interested in finding out the truth, capital T. What is the truth? What is true? And while at Carthage, he comes in contact with a religion known as Manichaeanism or it's also written out as Manichaeism. What is Manichaeanism? What is machia However you spell it. It's a religion that was founded by a, a, a prophet named Mani. M-A-N-I. Like peanut in Spanish. <laughs> Mani. That's Mani. right? Mani. Mani was Persian. Present-day Iran. And Mani had been very influenced by a religion that had existed in Persia since the fifth century before Christ. It was an old religion, Zoroastrianism, founded by someone named Zoroaster. So here things are getting a little complicated, but to understand Augustine, you have to understand this. Mani's religion was fully dualist in its theology. So is Zoroastrianism. What does that mean? Here's what it means, practical terms. There are really two divine powers, one good and spiritual and one evil. And it's the evil one that created the material world and trapped our souls in it. Whoa. So in Mani's religion, you know, the human soul which is eternal, comes from from the good spiritual God. And somehow it's been trapped in this world. So the, that sounds like Neoplatonism, right? Well, Neoplatonism, there's some parallels there. But the thing about Manichaeanism is that they also believed in reincarnation. How do you get back to your true spiritual home? Oh, you live many lives, and through all these lives, you... You may go up a little bit and get more and more spiritual uh, or sometimes you slide back and and you end up being reincarnated lower, even as, uh, as an animal. Oh, that sounds a lot like Indian religion, doesn't it? And uh, yeah, of course it does. The point being, this dualistic religion is embraced by Augustine. He thinks of matter as evil and of embodiment as evil and of our material world being dominated by this evil deity well how do you get back to your spiritual self oh that's where it got a little complicated because they believe in reincarnation manichaeans believed that those who were more spiritually advanced had to lead a very special kind of life a life of self-denial and In this life of self-denial, you not only restricted your eating and drinking, but also if you were spiritual enough, you could not have sex. Because the worst thing you could do, absolute worst thing every human being does, is to have sex and make children. Because by making children, you're retrapping souls in bodies. So they had two classes of people. The Manichaean, let's, for lack of a better term, let's call it a church. It wasn't a church in our sense, but the Manichaean religion. You had two levels. You had those who were perfect or on their way to perfection, and they fasted all the time. They didn't have sex. They were celibate. They were vegetarian uh, or vegan. And then you had the hearers or learners. Who began to learn about this cosmic problem, and um, they they married and they had sex and so on. They just couldn't uh, couldn't restrain themselves, and they ate more than the the perfect, and so on, and so. Forth. Anyway, this is what is Augustine's first encounter with religion, but he grows increasingly dissatisfied with the fact that Manichaeans can't seem to explain to him how this mess came about. <laughs> And finally, he gets to meet the most prominent Manichaean in his area, and he asks him a number of questions, and he is still dissatisfied with his answers. But by now, he has also encountered some Neoplatonists, and that seems more attractive to him. So he becomes a Neoplatonist. So now, instead of seeing this world as evil and of the cosmos being ruled by it. two powers, one spiritual and good and one evil. Now as a Neoplatonist, there's the one, the noose and the psyche, and um, there's no evil being and matter is not evil. Bodies are not evil. It's just that they are so inferior, right? And there's pain and there's suffering and so, but there's no evil is not a positive thing. Evil is the absence of good.
0: So you can almost say Neoplatonism prepared St. Augustine for Christianity.
1: Oh, definitely. And one can't forget the fact his mother was Christian. And his mother desperately wanted her boy to become a
0: Christian. <laughs> I imagine so he, she, had, she was constantly hounding him. Oh,
1: I am sure. But if, by this point, Augustine has met a woman that that he lives with and they have a monogamous relationship and they have a son and they give him the name Adeodatus, gift of God. Sadly, Adeodatus would die at age 14. But Augustine is, uh, use an American term, shacking up with this woman, although in a monogamous relationship, but he's not married. They're not legally married. He can't marry her because she is a lower class than his. And his mother not only desperately wants him to to be a Christian, but wants him to marry the right kind of girl. (laughs) See how complicated things can get, even with uh, going back to the, the fourth century? Life hasn't changed much in some respects. But anyway, Augustine has picked up lots of things about Christianity from his mother and other Christians around him. But here's the problem for Augustine why he doesn't want to be a Christian because he finds the Bible disgusting and stupid. So there's nothing good here. There's just stories about terrible, the old, the Hebrew scriptures it's just a story after story of terrible people who do terrible things. And the new Testament makes no sense to me what what do you mean this man got crucified and people thought he was God and and somehow by just believing in him you're, you're saved that all seemed like nonsense to him and we'll return to this because the, he eventually changes his mind of course so he goes through his Neoplatonist phase and um, wants very much to return to the one and, and actually um, since we're running out of time um,
0: yeah, I was I was thinking this this might be a good a good stopping point and yeah. and pick up on our next episode on on Saint Augustine and how his conversion took place and yes. how he became as as they call him, the Prince of Mystics.
1: Yes, a cliffhanger.
0: <laughs> leave, leave the audience it just. We gave him a right. taste. Yes, we gave him a taste, and now. Just, uh, the next episode will we'll get into You can come back and find out the rest of the story yeah, about St. Augustine.
1: And um, it's a very interesting story actually.
0: No, I, I I I find it just utterly amazing how all these things work together even though they're come from com- completely different angles and and schools of thought how it all comes together and towards Christianity and and works in that way, because I think it's it's very important for if we're going to understand mysticism, is how exactly that interconnection or that interplay between the physical and the spiritual happens. And I think, uh, as you're as you're mentioning, the Greek philosophy is is really the key there to understand how how those two can connect. Yes, and, and
1: also if I could add one more thing, and we'll pick up on this next time, is that, yes, the Greek philosophy, especially the Neoplatonism, is very important, but so is the Bible for Augustine. And, uh, you know, a preview of things to come. He has to find a way of making sense of the Bible positively rather than negatively, because eventually, yes, the Bible will be supremely important, central to, to Augustine, but he has to learn how to read it positively but what is that well we'll pick up there
0: we'll find out on the next episode yeah well carlos thank you so much for another great episode a lot of information on this one i know we got a deep into some weeds there on on (laughs) greek philosophy but i think it's really important for us to in order to really understand christian mysticism we have to understand how the structure uh on, on how it happens and and yes. how it comes together. So yeah. I think this is this gives us a, some good foundational uh, information, some good building blocks to be able to to understand it and now when we start in future episodes start hearing the stories and uh, about mystics we'll we'll be able to understand where they're coming from and how it's all taking place. But thank you again for joining us Carlos.
1: My pleasure and my joy.
0: Same here, same here. So until our next episode, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. If you have any questions for Dr. Air, you'll find our email address in the show notes. Just send it on over, and we'll try to answer it in a future episode. And don't forget to click the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast.